0: Some of the people at that law firm had come straight out of the Senate Watergate Committee. They had brought down the president, Richard Nixon.
1: I wonder if there's any way to quantify corruption
0: i was kind of bitten with the bug uh, exposing things is something like that going on in ukraine today to document war crimes it sure is with something called the syrian archive community investigation or citizen investigation the idea that regular people can pick up the tools of research investigation and do their own digging
1: my name is jay newman and welcome to the under money podcast i'm a hedge fund manager and author of a political financial thriller called under money if you're interested in how the world really works i know you'll enjoy the show because we focus on the intersection of money corruption and power today our featured guest is jim mince jim is the founder of one of the world's foremost investigations firms And he has now created something called Dig Lab, uh, which is a not-for-profit aimed at training citizen researchers to unearth and document wrongdoing. Jim, it is such a privilege to have you here. Thank you.
0: Hey Jay, good to be here.
1: So Jim, I'd love it if you would, you've had such a, a fascinating career And you started you started when you were a kid uh, because you didn't like the way the world was going. And I think from the time you were 13 years old, you yourself were a digger wondering how to figure stuff out. Can you take us back that far and then um, fast forward to your career in journalism and then how it led to investigations?
0: Jay, I'm uh, I'm an old guy. I um, I was in high school in the uh, in the late 1960s. And those were uh, interesting times. Uh, Vietnam and eventually Watergate came to dominate the headlines. And uh, I was a bit of a of a radical as a as a teenager. Uh, So I was reading the exposes in uh, in The New York Times and Ramparts magazine about the lies that the U.S. government was telling about uh, what was going on in Vietnam and the bombing of Cambodia and so on. And, uh, for example, I uh, subscribed, my brother and I subscribed to a, uh, an obscure newsletter that would come in the mail called I.F. Stone's Weekly. And uh, I.F. Stone worked all by himself. He was a journalist, an old style journalist, and he would go through the uh, the statements that the Pentagon was making about uh, soldiers deaths in Vietnam, for example, and he would tote up what they said yesterday and last week versus what they were saying today and see that they, uh, the answers didn't add up uh, and would kind of make fun of the uh, powers that be uh, through deep uh, research and analysis. And uh, when those um, newsletters would arrive in the mail, my brother and I would rip them open and, and enjoy his humor uh, at the expense of these uh, generals and uh, President Lyndon Johnson.
1: Which probably put I have stone. I'm I'm sure I have stone was on the FBI's watch list. They probably tapped his phone. And which meant you and your brother probably were, too.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, we you know, we were teenagers. We you know, we uh, uh, didn't uh, really look uh, that far beyond our own. our own uh, outrage at, at, at all of what was going on. And, and of course, uh, those were the Black Panthers times. So Vietnam and racial justice were the issues of the day, uh, uh, similar to uh, the kinds of things we uh, are concerned about today. From the very beginning, I think it went into my DNA to admire digging into uh, a hidden power and, uh, and doing something to expose it.
1: Uh, and then, uh, not long after that, you started your career in journalism.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I went to Boston University. I was a history major. I was uh, writing uh, movie reviews for the campus newspaper. And uh, I was sitting outside my professor's office waiting for him to get off a phone call. The phone call was clearly dramatic. And when he hung up and apologized for holding me up, he started to explain what was going on behind the scenes at the university. Uh, it was run by a sort of an autocratic guy, uh, ran for governor as a kind of right winger eventually in Massachusetts named John Silber. And uh, Silber was trying to twist arms behind the scene, uh, maybe even get rid of tenure for the professors. And um, and I said to my history professor, look, I, uh, I write movie re- reviews for the campus paper. Maybe I should write up this little uh, uh, contretemps with the president you're having. And he said, sure, just leave my name out of it. Uh, I did, and it caused a bit of a stir on the campus. The president of the university uh, wrote a, a public letter uh, saying that I had poisoned the well of academic discourse. A letter that my mother treasured to her dying <laughs> day. But I was kind of bitten with the bug of, of uh, exposing things, and I dropped the movie reviews. And uh, by the time I graduated a couple years later, uh, people were leaking me uh, uh, trustee minutes, which had some dramatic things in them. So I, I, I really, uh, you know, had some fun and, and was shot out of a cannon after college. You know, headed toward some kind of investigative reporting, mm-hmm. and 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 that's what you did for
1: for quite a while.
0: Yeah, I um, uh, I love to dig into new things, and that was both my fun uh, as a as an invest freelance investigative reporter. Um, I, I would do a new topic each time that you know blew my mind, uh, but it. Uh, made it hard to make a living. You know, I had to sort of uh, recreate things from the beginning. And uh, after a couple years of that, uh, and my wife kind of throwing up her hands, I moved from uh, uh, investigative reporting to working for a law firm as an investigator, kind of a strange arrangement, a law firm that had uh, an investigative unit inside it. And some of the people at that law firm had come straight out of the Senate Watergate Committee, They had brought down the president, Richard Nixon, uh, and then gone into private practice. And uh, that was post Watergate, Washington, where the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act was born in the late 70s. And I was uh, working for these uh, uh, former Watergate committee lawyers uh, who were attracting all sorts of business as lawyers from people who wanted to dig into things in the business world. So that was kind of my beginning as a professional investigator. I think the first assignment I worked on there was the client was the state of Alaska. And we were investigating how the oil companies had built the Alaska pipeline because there was a provision in that contract that uh, the oil companies could get uh, uh, tax uh, uh, abatements based on the cost of the pipeline as long as there was no, quote, waste, fraud or abuse in how they Mm. built it. They said it would cost $3 billion. I think it cost $13 billion. And there was plenty of room for us to come along on behalf of the state to save tax money to say, hold on a second, you know, where'd this billion go? And and so on and so forth. So it was, uh, we put on a set of hearings. Uh, we issued a gigantic report on all this. And we found a lot of waste, fraud, and abuse.
1: Actually, out-and-out fraud. So people were, were what, padding the bills and, and spending money on... Uh choppers and hookers what was going on
0: all of the above i mean i don't know about hookers but uh (laughs) yeah it was a freewheeling environment where they apparently did not get that there was going to be some scrutiny uh later on
1: you know it's fascinating because those were today there are there are, are many investigations firms and i think it's very common for law firms and investors to hire people Uh, and hire firms like Mintz Group and others uh, to dig into, uh, you know, the details of of projects, whether they're individual due diligence or corporate due diligence or suspected corruption. But those were very, that was really new. That didn't, that industry didn't exist at the time you started in it. So you really were a pioneer in that whole field.
0: Yes. and, uh, And part of that was coming out of investigative reporting to do that work. The field of private investigation uh, had been until right around then completely dominated by people coming out of police forces and maybe at the FBI. But I remember when I went in to take my uh, test as a, uh, to, to get my private eye license in New York State. And you do uh, have to get licensed uh, state by state. Everybody else uh, taking the test was coming out of the police force, as far as I could tell. Uh, they all seemed to know each other they were joking around as the test uh, began and um, and I was the outlier
1: and how did you make then the tra- transition from uh, working in, in this internal group at a law firm to setting up your own uh, your own outfit
0: it was a a particular case came along uh, where a public interest group wanted our little investigative unit within the law firm uh, wanted us to investigate how the uh, the power companies, the nuclear power industry, was spying on the um, activists who were opposing them. And uh, the law firm, uh, we went to the law firm and said, gee, uh, the investigators probably finally brought in a case, you know, this and this cool, and uh, a paying case. Uh, and the lawyers got together and decided, look, we don't have a, a, a real conflict of interest, but we have a kind of sort of a business conflict that that might keep us out of, you know, nuclear power clients. Uh, And so my fellow investigator and I, also a former reporter, decided to leave the law firm and uh, and take this one case. We were so interested in it and that kept us in clover for about a week. And uh, and then we were kind of on our own uh, trying to see about making a business out of this. So from the very beginning, this was in Washington, D.C., from the very, very beginning, our little investigative effort was uh, worked for law firms uh, on behalf of, you know, various folks. uh, In that case, a public interest group, but more commonly uh, a business probably in a dispute or uh, the victims of a fraud or or those kinds of clients.
1: And how frequently did you find uh, in those days and, of course, today, that um, corruption, either business or political, was a factor in the work you were doing?
0: I think if we define corruption broadly, uh, I think it underlies a great deal of of what we have ended up investigating. Uh, maybe we have to add the word fraud, uh, fraud and corruption. But I think there's a lot of overlap there. For example, uh, We talk a lot about insider trading now uh, as something the government enforces. Well, the first time that really came along as a headline was when uh, the Southern District of New York prosecutors, led by one Rudy Giuliani, investigated uh, the Wall Street firm Drexel Burnham Lambert and their star Michael Milken uh, for insider trading. And Giuliani did so on the basis of the word of an individual named Ivan Boski. Bosky was a, a real insider trader, uh, a, a crook. And Rudy Giuliani uh, got him to agree to give up $100 million of his ill-gotten gains and announced that if Boskey held out one penny that he hadn't told the gover- government about, that would ruin him as a witness against Michael Milken. And Milken uh, and Drexel hired us to, uh, to test that, in effect. Uh, here was this government witness who was a creepy guy uh, who was going to be their, the key witness against them, and to see whether uh, this guy had um, had held out money that he hadn't told his new master, Rudy, about, whether he'd hit it in Sw- Switzerland or, or wherever in the world. And I think Vanity Fair reported later that Mintz spent two years of his life investigating Ivan Bosky, and that was that was about right. Wow. So. Uh, it's not corruption in the classic sense, but Bosky was, you know, allegedly. Uh, I'm not sure about. I even need to say allegedly, uh, paying people off for information with bags of cash. So it certainly had corruption in it.
1: You know, Jim. One of the things that strikes me about your approach, and of course, you've you've now built a firm uh, that uh, has operated in in offices in 18 countries, and you've operated in 100 countries. Uh, you've got hundreds of employees. You have you have a very unusual view of the world and of the investigations business, which I think I've heard you refer to as radical transparency, a particular focus and skill at human intelligence. That's something that is kind of rare these days, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I, maybe I borrow the word radical from my early days, Jay, but, <laughs> um, but a more descriptive term for what I, what I think works is uh, on the record investigation. That is that the investigator ought to be proud to write an affidavit uh, describing every step uh, he or she took uh, in the investigation. And I I guess I get this from my journalism background, uh, that we shouldn't ought to be doing things that that would be embarrassing to us or our client uh, or outrageous to the public uh, in the course of doing our Investigating, and you're right. That is not a philosophy that seems to be shared by our our whole industry. There's, for example, uh, hacking going on uh, by one side in litigation against another. I I can't think of anything creepier or more embarrassing than than hacking the lawyers or or others uh, on the other side of a a dispute, a big business dispute that you're having. Yeah. Not uh, to mention, not to mention criminal. Not to mention, yeah, we're not uh, trying to be Boy Scouts. We're trying to do things that are effective on behalf of of our clients. And we just think that often one needs to uh, gain the cooperation of other human beings and that the way to do that is to be straight up uh, about uh, what we're digging into and see if we can gain the the sympathy of uh of this other person. I'll give you an example. We we often work for the victims of fraud, and we're coming along trying to unravel that. Let's say we want to knock on the door of somebody who used to work at a bank where something uh, fraudulent went down. We would uh, argue that the best way to knock on that door is to say exactly who we are and try to gain their sympathy to try to help us. In some cases, there's Nothing they can tell us, that they might be under all sorts of strictures about uh, secrecy or non-disclosure agreements or whatever. But we find that sometimes people, even under those strict rules, can figure out ways to help us Mm -hmm. if they appreciate the approach that we've made to them, uh, the sort of the human to human aspects of how you can approach somebody in a situation like that and look um, look to guide us through some kind of, you know secret world that we're trying to get to know on behalf of the victims. What happened here?
1: Which is um, classically what investigative reporters do. That's right. Yeah. You know, Jim, I'm glad you used, I think you used the word game a second ago. And uh, I'm just struck by, um, it's, it's on, I think it's on the Mintz Group website, the, uh, the game you created called kleptocracy, which... It's not, it's not a funny game, but it's, it's, a, it's a true game that, and maybe you'll take us through how you designed it, what your thinking was, because it's an amazing expose, like a kind of like a classic comic of international crime, how people steal money, how they hide money, how they move money around, and how they ultimately how they spend it. It's just, uh, I, I, I commend it to everybody to not just play it, but to embrace it, to understand how big the industry is, the corruption industry, uh, and how it works. And I wonder if you could take us through your thinking in designing the game and, and actually how the game works.
0: Yeah, th- among the victims that we work for are our governments sometimes who want to uh, pursue the corrupt public officials, let's say, who've just been thrown out of office. We started to think that we were seeing some patterns happening over and over we thought maybe we could do something in the public interest. Maybe we could create some kind of visualization of these patterns we were seeing. So the first thing we did is we decided that we would try to gather together all the examples we could find of the mechanics of how these corrupt officials had hidden the money that they stole and also how they got caught. So uh, we found about 35 cases like that. There is a lot of data out there. For example, the World Bank has a, something called the Star Database, where they uh, put on the record, they gather for you all sorts of hearings and uh, indictments and other material that take you into the details of how people hid their dirty money. We put all those 35 examples into a kind of blender and let them spin out what the pattern was. And we found that uh, there are five stages of of hiding dirty money and that uh, just every one of these 35 examples uh, fit into that pattern. So we looked at that for a minute and thought, wait a minute, we could make a game out of this. And we did. It's called Kleptocrat. We released it for free in the uh, Apple App Store and and uh, and elsewhere as a kind of a public service, uh, uh, saying to whoever wants to play that we think this will help you spot dirty money flowing around and, and help to expose it. You play our game as the bad guy, as the corrupt official, and we thought this would be a way to, to draw you in to the kinds of choices that a corrupt official faces when they have to uh, hide the money and so on, and there are risks and rewards that a once we get you to think like the bad guy. And by the way, all thirty-five of these were guys that they face um, in in uh, in doing this. For example, uh, uh, every single one of them involved family members and friends and professionals in hiding the money. Well, those people, under certain circumstances, will turn on the wealthy corrupt official and sometimes steal the money themselves or uh, blow the whistle. In many cases, this the millions of dollars that might be or sometimes hundreds of millions flowing through the hands of a, oh, I don't know, a fiduciary or somebody who's called upon to sign as a trustee of some Panamanian company or some uh, cousin who's uh, told to take the gold bars through the airport, not kidding. Sometimes those folks are making, you know, uh, bupkis here. They're, they're being uh, paid a, a sort of a wage, uh, but they're aware that, uh, that all of this is enriching uh, their uh, cousin or client. And sometimes that puts them in the mood, if we come along later, knock on their door, you know, walk down the beach in the Caymans, knock on their door. Uh, sometimes uh, people uh, we find are willing to help us and we put all those kinds of insights into the game.
1: So one thing that that struck me uh, is that you wouldn't be able to, uh, it's just the tip of the iceberg. The 35 odd cases that the World Bank put up on its uh, star website, which is a phenomenal effort, are just the tip of the iceberg. I I wonder if there's any way to quantify corruption, particularly political corruption. And I wonder if you've thought about whether it's more or less prevalent uh, than it was when you
0: started your career. I think it's as prevalent as ever, and that is not a good comment uh, because there has been an enormous movement between uh, seeing the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act passed when I was a youth uh, and now 40-some years later, uh, during which uh, society has done uh, a number of things to try to fight corruption, and I think a number of good things. Uh, We could talk about that. But I don't I don't fool myself that uh, that it, that any of this by uh, investigators for victims or investigative reporters or financial cops or prosecutors or uh, nonprofits have made much difference. And I think to say, the, you know, if you argue that the world is less corrupt than it used to be, I, I think you're naive. So if
1: so, what are what what are those good things that have been done uh, and why don't they work better?
0: Yeah. uh, One way to think about this, I think, is how long it takes for some of this accountability and justice to arrive at at doing any good. For example, uh, you know, the Obama administration got, uh, I think, four hundred and some hundred, four hundred and eighty million dollars, I think, back that had been stolen by the Nigerian uh, dictator Sonny Abacha. And they, of course, issue a press release about that. And and the Sonny Abacha case is a bit of a touchstone in the field for for having a bit of success. But they got that money back 16 years after Sonny Abacha died. Wow. Wow. And so, you know, justice did not arrive on time. Let, Let me let me extend the point. There's a well-known example of um, the son and heir apparent of the dictator of Equatorial Guinea. The son is uh, Teodoro Obiang. And uh, he uh, lived a lavish uh, life uh, even in the United States uh, with money that he couldn't explain, with with dirty money stolen from the people of Equatorial Guinea and had a mansion in Malibu. And he bought up uh, a lot of, of Michael Jackson's memorabilia Uh, including the crystal studded glove that Michael Jackson wore on the Bad Tour, one of the great sort of cultural icons of our time. The Department of Justice began to close in on him. Uh, There were uh, 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 nonprofit initiatives to hold him to account and so on. And as the the cops got closer and closer to him, and they eventually did uh, take his mansion in Malibu away from him, the $30 million mansion. As things were closing in, the Michael Jackson glove disappeared. And I believe to this day, nobody knows where it is. I assume he still has it. Um, and it's, it's not a big deal, but I just think it's a symbol of how, and, and, and I'm, I mean well-meaning people, I don't I, I don't, I really mean that, you know, that, that there was really an attempt to, to hold him to account, uh, but it arrived so late uh, that, that this symbol of our culture has disappeared into his, uh, into his vault somewhere. But this—and
1: and they're still in—and the family's still in charge.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The,
1: and nobody went to jail.
0: No. <laughs> no. You know, I think I said—I I also see some—you uh, know, the glass half full as well. And, and and I wanted to give an example of that. When the—I I think you call him the prime minister of, U, of Ukraine in 2014, Yanukovych, fled to Russia, pro-Russian uh, president of Ukraine— uh, and there was a, he was ousted in a, in a kind of a, a soft revolution. The FBI uh, immediately sent a team to Kiev to begin to look for and led an effort to keep the assets of the corrupt officials in that administration, to keep those assets from being moved and to see what documents could be found uh, that would expose that corruption. And they did it in real time. There is focus on this issue of Justice arriving too late to do much good, but it, it, it in general is not, you know, not an encouraging picture of uh, of corruption. You know, uh, busted all over the place.
1: Yeah, the real the real time point is is fascinating because uh, I'm just thinking about the um, uh, Marcoses in the Philippines, uh, and basically Fernand Marcos, a you know a, a dictator for many years, finally was toppled, died in the nick of time. Uh, But most of the money that he and his wife, and his wife, of course, was famous for her shoe collection, which I think is still on exhibit uh, in the Philippines. She battled that using legal, massive legal resources for years and years and years. I think some money was confiscated, some buildings were confiscated, like the Crown Building in New York. But in the end, again, nobody went to jail. And um, I think her son is now a a major political figure uh, in the country.
0: I'll tell you a funny story about that case, Jay. We worked—I worked, uh, I worked uh, early on. This is so many years ago for the Good Government Commission that the Philippine government stood up after the Marcoses to try to recover those assets. And um, we got a tip that that some artwork might be moved uh, out of a particular uh, fancy townhouse in Manhattan, and we put the townhouse. Under surveillance, I had a particular uh, a woman in, uh, I worked with who loved uh, surveillance, and uh, she was sitting out there. And sure enough, you know, early in the morning, out of the of the front door of this uh, fancy townhouse, come what looked like uh, big pieces of art, you know, uh, boxed for uh, for travel. So the the artwork goes into a van. The van van takes off, and she's uh, in hot pursuit. And they went out to JFK Airport, van pulled up, they took the artwork out, they went up to the counter and she abandoned her car and ran up and stood right behind him in line. And they said she could hear them saying they were going to Manoa. So I guess to rehide the artwork. And she called me at about that point and I said, oh, I'm so sorry uh, you can't follow them because I I doubt you brought your passport along this morning when you went on surveillance. And she said, I always bring my passport on surveillance. <laughs> And she flew to the Philippines without even a toothbrush and uh, and kept following them when they landed. Wow. And tracked the art, presumably. Yeah, I mean, it was all, uh, uh, you know, a real chase, you know, with, with all sorts of uh, wins and losses along the way. You know,
1: it's amazing how much of this, uh, I'm thinking now of uh, Isabel Dos Santos, uh, who uh, another, at one point, mooted to be the richest woman in Africa, who had all sorts of... Uh, concessions for industry and telephony and satellite and, and oil. She was a darling of the international social set uh, for, for a very long time. People had to have known that all of her, all of her money, every, every dollar she was spending at uh, Tramp and Doubles uh, was stolen. But for the longest time, no one said anything.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think we have a right to be cynical about examples like that.
1: But, but what, what, I'm, what I'm heading toward is your, your latest project called Dig Lab. And I have to say, when I first saw Dig Lab, I thought, well, he must mean digital lab, right? Because everything is digital these days. But you don't mean that no. at all. What you mean is actually dig, as in finding information and mining for information.
0: A laboratory for digging into things, we think of it. And... Uh, The cause that we have taken up with some other nonprofits, uh, investigative reporting groups and so on, our cause is community investigation or citizen investigation. The idea that regular people can pick up the tools of research and uh, investigation and do their own digging. I've been teaching investigative reporting now. I went back to my roots. 15 years ago, and and I've been teaching at the Columbia Journalism School in their investigative reporting program. And we have 20 or so students every year who graduate with investigative reporting degrees, and they're wonderful. So over the years, my co-teacher and I uh, happens to be from the Philippines and helped to bring down the corrupt in the old days, a woman named Sheila Coronel. Uh, a well-known investigative reporter. She and I have graduated a kind of a generation of a couple of hundred investigative uh, reporters. But if you think about it, it's just not enough. There aren't enough reporters in the world. There aren't enough financial cops in the world. And the internet has democratized the tools of digging into things, if you think of it that way. Uh, A lot of the methods we use or that, that financial cops use and prosecutors use a lot of that is open source. And not only things that, from the internet, but you know we live in times where every a person we know has a, t- has a camera on them at all times, a, a cell phone. for the first time ever. you know where I teach at Columbia, they award the Pulitzer Prizes in Journalism out of that building. For the first time last year, the Pulitzer Prize Committee a, awarded a special citation to Darnella Fraser. The teenager who held up her phone at the murder of George Floyd, and without her having done that, it, it's doubtful that we would have ever heard of George Floyd. And what the Pulitzer committee said was, uh, "Congratulations, Ms. Frazier, You represent citizens who are are helping in the in the the quest for to get at at the truth." And so my uh, fellow nonprofits and I, there's four of us, have have created something called the SEEK initiative, like SEEK and ye shall find. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're headquartered in uh, in Germany, in, in Essen and Berlin, uh, Germany. And we are beginning to train and encourage and work with regular folks uh, uh, in their own communities on issues of wrongdoing or other things that are important to those local communities, helping how we can for them to tell their own stories, you know, let's take it back to corruption. Anti-corruption work has been viewed as a sort of uh, something that lawyers do, where you bring cases to court. But there's more we can do to kind of democratize that fight for truth. And we believe in a kind of people-powered anti-corruption. You know, uh, there are people who, who have assisted all over the world with the hunt for uh, the yachts and mansions of the Russian oligarchs who are being sanctioned. Information has flooded in from all over the world uh, via the internet. There are people who who are known as plane spotters who make it their business. They're people who, they're not uh, professional investigators or reporters or anything of the kind, but they make it their business to keep an eye out for private planes of uh, wealthy, powerful people who are coming into some local airport and they take down the tail numbers and look up who owns that plane. And when amalgamated all of the different efforts of these plane spotting citizens around the world, there is a kind of a a net thrown over the movements of private planes now that there didn't used to be. And it's incredibly helpful when you're trying to, to track all this. The same with you know, nerdy people who expand out, like blow up uh, pictures of, uh, of public officials around the world uh, who are wearing, you know, $130,000 watches when their uh, salary as a vice president of some country, you know, pays them, you know, one one hundredth of that amount. And they make a um, websites of these uh, watches and planes and yachts and, and a, a million other ways. Uh, that regular people are starting to, to dig into things. And I, I, I would offer that as, you know, part of where I, I hope things are going so that anti-corruption is not viewed. You know, maybe people need some training or, or encouragement or to be in touch with each other, to collaborate with each other, uh, or to, for there to be standards of how you take the video or, or, or snap the picture or, uh, or do the research. A kind of a movement of, uh, kind of a, a people-powered investigation movement, uh, that I think could have real implications for the, the anti-corruption work.
1: I think if I'm if I'm right, a lot of the, uh, the documentation of war crimes in Syria uh, has been the result of just this sort of kind of citizen soldier, citizen journalist activity. Is something like that going on in Ukraine today to document war crimes?
0: It sure is. And the Syrians have pioneered uh, with something called the Syrian Archive. And that word archive has taken on a sort of a people-powered definition in recent years, so that there's now, I believe, a a Ukraine archives and so on. It's aimed at human rights abuses, uh, violations of the Geneva uh, Conventions and so on. But we all understand that uh, powerful people who abuse their citizens are the same people who abuse the treasury and, and steal, uh, so that corruption and human rights abuse uh, are, are often uh, done by the same folks. And, but this whole idea of, of archives has taken on a sort of a cross-border, cross-example meaning. How, so we're, we're gonna end up, uh, I think you, you will be successful, you
1: are being successful in, in training people uh, in amassing information, in educating them on how to make it available. I think archives that are leaked, a uh, whole different category, but uh, leaks like the Panama Papers, um, which produce massive amounts of information. So we're going to have more and more data out there. How does that get weaponized? I mean, how do you turn, because at the end of the day, you can have all the information and you can put it out there. And, you know, it, will it will it have an
0: effect, or I
1: should say, How can it be weaponized to have an effect?
0: I really come back to this notion that uh, people need to be involved in holding their leaders to account or leaders across borders, uh, as we're witnessing with the citizens of the world keeping their eye out for these uh, yachts of the Russian oligarchs that are sanctioned. And I believe that is beginning to happen. There are all sorts of ways to become an activist uh, with information. You know you think about activism, uh, let's say you care about an issue, uh, uh, your leader's stealing, or you know your your nurse friend down at the local hospital says these weird, uh, uh, masks arrive that don't seem to work. And the, it seems to be an insider deal. They bought these crappy masks or just something comes in front of you. The The stream behind your house starts to smell bad. And you're like, wait a minute, who who's dumping something in my stream? These are, you know, lo- issues that are important to you. What can you really do about it? Are you gonna go in the street and carry a sign? Sure, that would be activism. You could lobby your uh, local uh, uh, political representative, that would be fine. You call the local newspaper. They may or may not even be anybody there to answer your phone uh, because so many reporters, uh, the, the media is under such, um, so, so starved for resources and so under attack. Uh, maybe it's time for for you to do something about it yourself and gather your friends together and see if you can Uh, And dig into those issues. So, to me, that's how uh, information gets weaponized. You know, the you refer to the Panama Papers, and I and I think those reporters did a terrific job of bringing alive, you know, that this or that public figure had a uh, had an offshore bank account. But people in local places really know who those individuals are, uh, and I think you know that's uh, part of the business that I'm in is uh, you know, somebody on the other side of the world wants to do a deal with somebody thousands of miles away, and maybe they don't get it. Maybe the, you know, the, the business doing the deal doesn't get it that this fellow in uh, Peru or Thailand or, or Ghana does not have a good reputation locally. Maybe he's even known locally as being corrupt and might hire a firm like ours to, uh, to look into that. So this whole idea that local knowledge is uh, is a powerful and and largely untapped resource, and that the tools of research and uh, and connection uh, have been democratized, if we take advantage of them and coordinate and collaborate, to me that offers some hope for, as you say, you know, weaponizing some of this information that's that's flowing out. So I, I have a. Call it a thought and a, and a question because
1: we have uh, you know a an enormous industry in this country um, of lawyers who attack public issues, the class action lawyers, um, uh, key tam lawyers. Uh, you know, in, in situations where individual citizens are kind of licensed to pursue um, bad actors and collect uh, a piece of it, and like like the whistleblower industry, which has been a phenomenal. Uh, you know, tool for um, outing corruption and outing misbehavior, particularly in the corporate sector. What I'm wondering is internationally, if on the back of all this work that uh, your Dig Lab students are doing, is it is it conceivable to think of grafting on to the current sanctions regime that we've got, particularly in this country and in Europe, a private right of action so that um, Dig Lab teams could say, to, and this is maybe taking you back full circle to where you started at the law firm doing investigations, saying we've got this file, what we need is we need legal talent and maybe we need some money, so maybe we add in some uh, hedge funds or investors, uh, and you kind of weaponize the information by uh, uh, unleashing the, what I call the, the dogs of law on a process. Could something like that work? Does anything like that exist today?
0: does not exist across borders. As you say, there are beginning to be uh, kind of whistleblower reward programs in the United States. But even that, I don't think, is is uh, replicated outside the United States. I guess um, I would hope that, that people can be brought into this kind of work without millions of dollars uh, at the end of the rainbow. But maybe that's, uh, maybe that's naive. You know, it's... Um, a matter of, of fairness, almost of patriotism, you know, for when government officials uh, fill their own pockets, uh, you know, particularly in places where folks are starving. Uh, Equatorial Guinea is one of the poorest places in the world. Beyond it being a sort of a financial crime, it's a it's a crime uh, uh, against against your people. My hope anyway, is that there is a, a, a real a real anti-corruption movement where without you know, without this or that individual in that crowd, in that swarm of people uh, getting a million dollars, that the movement together gets some reward. You know, a psychic reward, patriotic uh, reward for, uh, for rising up, I, I think, informationally is, is the way that I think of it. Information activism. Yeah.
1: Look, I think shame, um, shame is powerful, but, you know, we've seen uh, in lots of situations that shame isn't enough. I, I mean, the Dos Santoses, the Marcos's, the uh, Obiang's, uh, the um, Abucha's, you know, there's, there's plenty of shame to go around. Nobody goes to jail. No one actually ends up coughing up much money. So I'm just wondering whether, um, and I agree with you that, that the disclosure and the work should be its own reward. I'm just thinking that if in order to recover, and I spent a lot of my career chasing bad guys, as you have, and you've seen what, you know, how expensive it is to figure out what they've done, where their assets are, and then use a legal process to recover them. But having said that, the legal process can work very effectively. And this is, I'm thinking, if there's some sort of a bounty, most of the money gets returned to the country uh, itself. Maybe that's a model that we should be talking about and promoting.
0: I really agree, Jay, and uh, let me be uh, specific about that. I have been in discussions with various countries where a new group of people come into power and want to do something about corruption of the previous group. Now, we can be cynical about whether the new people might be corrupt as well, but in these situations it has seemed sincere that they really wanted to do an investigation and recover uh, billions uh, uh, stolen by the previous uh, regime. Mm-hmm. And example after example, the new government has not uh, had the resources or been willing to devote the resources to the kinds of intense investigation that it would take to, to hold, you know, sometimes dozens or hundreds of actors to account and get them to return uh, the money. And in some cases, I've said to these governments, Gee, um, there are folks out there, uh, litigation funders, um, who will put up money. You have to give them a, a, a percentage of what's recovered. Call it 30 percent or whatever it would take. Uh, they are putting up the money and taking the risk. And in every case where I've had these discussions, the new uh, government has said, gosh, uh, we, we, we can't do that politically. We can't wow. uh, be seen as sharing the, uh, the recovered money uh, with anybody, the, the 100 cents on the dollar has to come back to our treasury. And that has thwarted, I came very close at a conference, Jay, just the other day of, of anti-corruption folks of putting up my hand and saying, look, I got an idea. What if all of us, all of us advisors to victims in these situations declared it to be a standard practice and a best practice that you're gonna need some funding to do this kind of investigative work. And to do that, let's all together face the political consequences of sharing some of that money with the litigation funders. And I know that sounds mechanical and, and obscure, but uh, that would genuinely help in some of these situations.
1: It's so complicated. And I'm thinking in particular of the, the Star Initiative uh, at the World Bank, which is admirable, but it requ- the reason there are only 35 uh, uh, of those on file is just as you point out that the existing government has to make the request, so the the government that's in power has to go to the World Bank and say we think Minister X Y and Z or former President uh, Q wife mistress son daughter are you know have ill gotten gains and we'd like you to pursue it and then the World Bank can provide funding for that. But at the same time, you have the IMF sister institution that provides you know. Funding to hundreds of countries, uh, many of which, and we can just use the Transparency International website and ranking uh, as a uh, as a model for this. Many many of their clients line up with some of the most corrupt regimes on earth. Wouldn't something like this have to come from international institutions? Wouldn't it have to come from an institution like the IMF, U.S. Treasury, the EU? I mean, is, isn't don't we don't we need a a uh, a developed country initiative that makes this best practice, uh, because I, I think otherwise we'll have all this information, uh, and it's not going to really produce any change.
0: I'm not smart enough to know the answer to that geopolitical question, but I think you're asking the question at the right time. I think there's an acknowledgement right now that this whole anti-corruption regime has not worked out so well, and uh, and that. The corrupt continue to, you know, to get away with it, and I think people are looking for new models. Uh, I think uh, uh, funders are, you know, who uh, good guy funders who help in this area are frustrated at the level of um, of what we've been able to get done. I think, you know, veteran prosecutors and so on, as good as the work is, and like I was saying, with the Department of Justice, with Ukraine trying to catch up with this. A problem of justice arriving too late to do much good. I think people are uh, in a mood uh, for new models and new ideas on on how to do this.
1: You know, when, when it's uh, this this is going to head over a little bit into geopolitics um, again. But the an example of that shift uh, in attitudes, I think, is the sanction regime that's been imposed on Russia, which is. Um, just a, a holy war against uh, a whole a whole nation and a whole class of, let's call them oligarchs that have basically uh, used political power to steal everything that that is and isn't nailed down. But my, my, my question where I'm headed with that is whether and how sanctions work. Sanctions appear to work very effectively. To uh, crush the economies of the sanctioned countries, you can look at uh, North Korea, at Venezuela, at Cuba, and now at Russia. You know the economy is uh, is uh, basically blinking uh, steady red. But again, uh, it's the regime, the the powers that that are the Putins, the Kim Jong Eols, the Castros, uh, the Maduros. They don't disappear. The countries become miserable. The people become miserable. But the leaders seem to carry
0: on. Yeah, and I'll give you an investigative perspective on that on that glum uh, portrayal it, uh, that the sanctioned do not sit still and take their punishment; they evade the sanctions, and it, it's kind of a cat and mouse game. I remember um, the the New York Times years ago exposed how Iran, their uh, shipping uh, agency had was under uh, uh, heavy sanctions. Uh, You couldn't uh, uh, do business with them. Uh, Nobody in the world outside Iran could do business with them. And they sold, quote unquote, sold all their ships and brought in all sorts of new people, not Iranians, you know, that they sold their ships to. And then those ships could go off and continue to do what they were doing. But it turned out uh, the New York Times exposed through some really fantastic work, real legwork, that they had sold it to themselves, sold the ships to themselves, and that they still controlled them, and this all happened under the, the eye of the of the sanctions uh, agencies, you know. And and uh, and I, I remember the times, kind of, you know, implying, gee, here the media is doing the work of the of the governments in uh, in showing you the games that these people are playing to evade you. So it it's not done when you put sanctions on, and, and from an investigator point of view. I guess I would make the point that that all of us who investigate, it's helpful for us to kind of work together to the extent we can. We all have different interests, prosecutors, reporters, uh, nonprofits, citizens, et cetera. But we're all digging into wrongdoing. And it mm-hmm. uh, seems to me we ought to find some ways to to work together. And sanctions is a great example.
1: Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm reminded as you were telling that story of the oil for food program back in the day, uh, involving Iran, which was, and, you know, there were, it was why they recognized that sanctions were being violated and that money was being stolen. But when the UN investigated, and I think they hired, uh, was it Paul Volcker who ran the investigation? That's right. Uh, and so I'm I'm morally certain he did the right job and he got to the bottom of it. He but, did. He did a great job. But But the details of that were never were never disclosed they they kept the details of those reports under wraps maybe today that wouldn't happen but i do think there's an opportunity here to embrace the uh and and i agree with you on the funding i think lots of not-for-profits um why wouldn't the ford foundation uh you know or the rockefeller foundation be supportive of of these kinds of efforts i mean all you have to do is look at the you know what you're doing in dig lab uh, and what Global Witness does in, in their exposés um, to see that the you know, money is there, somebody has to, but somebody has to actually go after it and get it and return it to the people. And maybe that money is, as you point out, the, the countries are wary of using what's at least in theory public money – to pay private actors. So maybe that's where the charitable organizations come in and they make donations to prime the pump to get the process going. I'm just, I'm thinking out loud,
0: spitballing here. I, I agree with you. And I think one problem is that it's it's confusing. This landscape of investigative resources is confusing. You know, Global Witness, as you mentioned, are well known for doing kind of undercover work. Uh, some other group, uh, you know, Bellingcat, uh, a kind of a public interest uh, investigative reporting shop uh, that talk about citizen investigations started by a guy, Elliot Higgins, who was a stay-at-home dad in, in the UK, started educating himself about uh, about different kinds of missiles and ended up exposing, I think this was their first project, exposing that the, the Russians had uh, shot down a passenger plane, uh, Malaysian Air, mm-hmm. uh, such and such. Uh, and they, of course, uh, denied it. And Bellingcat is famous for showing how they reach these conclusions and, in effect, uh, encouraging their readers to, to uh, challenge or, or contradict anything they've put out there. You know, this is how we did it. So I, I love that spirit, that kind of transparent spirit of, uh, of doing it. But, you know, Bellingcat is brilliant at uh, social media uh, investigating and geolocation, looking at things from satellites. Uh, Human Rights Watch is brilliant at interviewing uh, there's a group in Brooklyn called Witness that teaches people how to do what Darnella Frazier did—to hold up their phones and, uh, and 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 create evidence. But all of this is really siloed and confusing, um, and that's kind of the point that we've been trying to make with this Seek initiative. We think there are these ten sort of pathways that anybody can go down to gather information, and we're trying to put all of that in one place. As a kind of big toolbox that might actually make a difference here.
1: Well, and then maybe um, you know we should be talking about how to how to really make it operational, which is um, because there just isn't enough time in the day for all the um, the prosecutors and people in the Serious Fraud Office and the FBI to even even ingest all the information that you're going to be that you are producing in DigLab and Bellingcat and others. So I think there is it's um, but maybe we, maybe we are at the right um, moment in time and because so much is being disclosed, people will want to see real change uh, for the first time. And maybe that's the combination of your radical transparency, human intelligence linked with the digital and making data available. Maybe that maybe that linkage is what really can make a, a change the system.
0: I think you're onto something, Jay. There is so much data out there. Uh, I'll give you an example. In Latin America, there's a tradition in many countries that contracts let by governments, national governments or local governments, that those contracts are published uh, online or references to them are published online. It's a kind of a dusty database that people don't read that much. And we have been training people in Latin America uh, or, and, and Transparency International. We've been joining transparency in some of these places to train regular folks uh, to dig into the red flags in those contracts, red flags for, for uh, corruption. But it, it begins with this fire hose of data that's firing at us uh, that, that none of us, no matter what our intentions or, or uh, you know, how, how much our prosecutor's office uh, intends to, that none of us can 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 get at at the at the you know the, as I say the red flags contained in that data.
1: You know it's a very it's a big point you uh, just raised about the transparency of contractual uh, relationships, and I'm thinking about uh, the Chinese and their their belt. We haven't talked about China, which of course is a big topic no matter what you're talking about, uh, and the fact that China has this Belt and Road initiative that uh, involves making loans and investments in hundred and sixty countries around the world in principle nothing wrong with that but the the contracts are typically they have a confidentiality clause there they require secrecy and it, there was a fascinating uh, I forget the name of the project but uh, Anna Gelpern led a uh, an analysis somehow they got a hold of about a hundred different contracts entered into by China with different countries and analyzed them and the the Terms are outrageous, and I think just that disclosure is going to change the dynamic of debt restructurings and maybe the behavior of public officials. I think your basic and central thrust here of transparency is just so critically important.
0: Yeah, the corrupt can't stand um, sunlight. It's what do they say about being the best disinfectant? That's it. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. It's a. It's a profound. <laughs> Uh, But hard to carry out uh, a piece of advice.
1: Jim, uh, you know, this we've uh, we've kind of wandered down a kind of, as you said, glum cul-de-sac. What are you optimistic about? What what excites you and what makes you feel that we're, you know, on the cusp of doing something different?
0: I come back, Jay, to uh, this notion of um, of the the people of the world using the tools that they're using anyway. You know, people are on the Internet all day long, all over the world. It spins around in a tight little circle and doesn't really get get you anywhere, whether it's, you know, social media scandals or misinformation or whatever. That more and more people are starting to break out of that and to pick up the tools of digging uh, and going somewhere with those tools rather than just going around in a little, in a little kerfuffle, in a little... Uh, circle, and, and I think it's it's very encouraging from the person holding a, their phone out the window in Ukraine and taking a picture of a Russian tank and uh, finding a way to upload that so that uh, all the pictures of the Russian tank as it makes its way, uh, all that can be uh, documented and and uh, and and fought uh, from something like that to you know these uh, people tracking uh, the 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 oligarchs uh, assets. I just think there is a spirit of um, democratizing, you know, the tools of digging that is I'm just incredibly uh, excited about. You know,
1: it's just uh, I just suggest an idea for um, dig lab uh, folks. Every every year the uh, at the, uh, the U.N. General Assembly, we get a, a flurry of foreign dignitaries. I use that term very loosely. Uh, coming to new york of course they attend the assembly but they're really there to shop and to your point about the you know the fancy watches and the clothing you can imagine that the that the dig lab could run a whole school on tracking photographing uh and chasing down these foreign officials that come to new york and as you pointed out you know who, who earn a a relatively small amount of money compared to the you know Two or three hundred thousand dollars they're spending on a watch, and uh, and and make that and make that public. And maybe I can even imagine that the um, uh, the sales clerk at uh, Armani or Harry Winston is going to hold up his or her phone and say, "Isn't this you, Mister Minister? Where'd you get that money? I'm going to take that credit card."
0: I think little things like that are beginning to happen. Corruption pisses people off and they aren't sure what to do about it, but, um, but if little avenues open up for them to do something about it in collaboration with others and, and with some skills and standards and, and uh, sense of community, uh, I, you know, I think stuff, whether the SEEK initiative succeeds or not, it's not as if we're starting this uh, trend. We're just jumping onto a, a moving train. I think there's some genuinely encouraging things here in terms of citizen investigation.
1: I think I think you're going to have a huge success, and I, I really do think you're onto something—a uh, real
0: change in sentiment and understanding. Um, you know, I, I end where I start, uh, Jay. I, I'm an old guy. I'm retiring from this private investigation world and devoting myself to this kind of public interest work. So we'll see. You know, as as that
1: happens, um, please come back. Let's let's uh, have a new conversation as you enter that new phase. Thank you. Thank you for um, for visiting. It's been it's it's been inspiration to me watching you and your career and what you've built uh, and what you're building now. So, again, thanks and thanks for DigLab and and what you're doing.
0: Fascinating talk, Jay. Thank you very much.
1: Enjoyed it. And uh, to those of you who are listening, uh, if you enjoyed the conversation with Jim Mintz, uh, please tune in again.